Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. Today, we have Managing Editor Catherine Lucky talking about her feature in the December issue on The Shakers, as well as Kaya Oaks. She speaks with Associate Editor Matt Sitman. This is the Commonweal Podcast. Okay, I'm here with Kate Lucky. Kate, your feature, The Last Shakers, appears in our December issue. I will encourage everybody to go and read that, but we're really happy to have Kate here to talk about the article today. And it's a long article, well-researched and fascinating study of a, a small religious community. And Kate, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write about The Shakers? My interest in the Shakers actually began with my interest in the Quakers. I was writing about them for my senior thesis in college. And whenever I told people I was studying this community in Cambridge, they would ask me if this was the same group that built beautiful furniture and inspired Appalachian Spring. And I said, no, that's actually the Shakers. I wondered what was going on with the Shakers and whether they still had an extinct community. So I had the opportunity when I was in graduate school to begin going up to Maine and to different replica villages, watching the documentaries about the Shakers and trying to find out more about them. In the process of doing so, I realized that one of my friend's fathers had almost become a Shaker. He was from the part of Maine where their village is located and had become sort of entranced with them as a teenager, giving tours around the village. He's very interested in antiques. He's a sort of historical preservationist now. And so they offered me a place to stay when I would come up and go visit the Shakers and sort of an inn with Brother Arnold, who is the central character in my piece. So my interest in them and my time researching them is intertwined with me with these trips to Maine, driving up there and eating lobster at my friend's house and hearing these stories from my friend's father, who would then come with me to meetings. And I got a sense through him of how much the community around the Shakers really values their presence. They love their beautiful land, of course. People feel very attached to their music and to their um, traditions of craftsmanship, but also just feel a deep sense of sort of peace and contemplation. The community at the time that I went had two members, Arnold, who is the uh, Shaker that I was able to interview, and Sister June who is uh, older but joined more recently than Arnold. Arnold joined when he was 21, so a similar age at which my friend's father would have joined if he decided to do so. And the process from there was kind of totally immersive and uh, proved obsessive for me, reading what I could. How how many visits did you make up to the village? I only took two, and if you read the piece, you'll find out why Mm -hmm. that is. But I also dragged my husband to a bunch of different museums and um, watched documentary, read a bunch of scholarly texts. Mm -hmm. My friend's dad, again, sent me this big envelope with shaker brooms on hooks drawn on it. I'll never forget receiving it. And I pulled it open full of packing materials, and he had sent me all these books. And I was able to get in touch with the shaker librarian, find some of their um, more mystical writings, and found some stories in newspapers. So was able to do a lot of research without being there as well. But certainly my time spent there informs much of this piece and my thinking about them. I do want to call attention, though, to the the historical information that you do include in the piece, because it provides such interesting context. And certainly, I think, even though, as you say, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept or the word, the Shakers, we're not really as familiar with the history. And I think that's a really uh, very interesting part of your feature. So the thing to know about the Shakers is that they are as old as America itself, older than America. So you can think of them 
in a similar way that you think about the Puritans. They were facing religious persecution in England. Uh, a small group led by this woman named Mother Anne Lees came over by ship and settled in New England. And at their peak, they had somewhere around, it's unclear exactly how many, but about 5,000 members in villages spread out in the Northeast, um, some in the South and some in the Midwest as well. And the f most fascinating thing about them to me is that they've been a continuous community. So from the time that those first followers came over until now, there have been people living as shakers, practicing their disciplines, which are celibacy, sharing, so they hold all their goods in common, pacifism, and a community that's marked by confession. And their meetings are similar to Quaker meetings, if anyone who's listening has ever been to one. So they are not led by any clerical authority. They are made by the people in the room, essentially. So people let the spirit move them and they provide reflections. There's some singing. The whole hour could be silent if no one has anything to say. If the spirit doesn't move, the hour could be filled with recollections, prayers, and songs. So they are extremely invested in a model of religion and life that is communal and not authoritative, hence brother and sister, the titles they use for each other. And uh, Kate, I think that's wonderful, you, you know, speaking about the history, but of course, you bring the reader right up to date into 2019. And I think that uh, it makes for some really fascinating reading. Thanks. And thank you, Dominic, for working on it. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I learned a lot, too. And I think our readers will enjoy reading The Last Shakers. There is a question mark in the headline, and it is now available on our website and will be featured in our December issue. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Dominic. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. So we uh, recently had a visit from Kaya Oaks. She's the occasional Commonwealth contributor and a writing professor at UC Berkeley, also author of The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention, an unlikely return to the Catholic Church. Kaya sat down with our associate editor, Matt Sittman, and their conversation follows. Thanks for being here, Kaya. It's early for you. We're recording this in the morning, New York time, but you've just arrived overnight from California, so it's really like 6 or 7 a.m. your time internally. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I'm still waking up, but Matt was nice enough to make me a large coffee. So. <laughs> well, we're glad you could be here. And what it must have been about a year and a half ago, we spoke in Berkeley for, an, for a Commonweal event, and we talked a lot about politics. We talked about the church, but I thought we might sort of begin with something different, which is as I mentioned, you're here from California. And over the last year or two, you've written at least three pieces for us that are kind of California-related. You recently reviewed the new memoir from Ferlinghetti, or is it's it a sort of novelized? Auto-fiction. Auto, auto <laughs> right, right. It's auto-fiction when men write it. and <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's memoir when women do. Yeah, along with a few other pieces. But you, you also wrote a piece called Letter from California that I think is one of my favorite pieces you've written in general. I really love that piece, and I was very proud that we were able to publish it. So I thought we might start with California, and 
you know, how that's influenced you as a writer some and, and the work you do. But I would be remiss to pass up the sort of news hook of the energy blackouts out there. The nation's largest utility provider, PG&E, cut power to almost 2 million residents. Did that affect you at all? Yeah, we were shut down at UC Berkeley. Let's see, they cut the power on, they announced they were going to do it, I think, Monday of last week. So there was a Sunday or Monday, the weather service said there's going to be really high winds and it's very dry. And so we're going to cut the power, but it was theoretically to prevent a fire. So what ended up happening was that we had, it was dangerous fire weather, but the fire ended up being in Southern California. And so there was a big fire in Southern California and they're under a different electrical utility. So what was kind of ironic about the whole thing is that they did it to prevent a fire, but the fire broke out somewhere else in California, which is very California. (laughs) So like we were trying to prevent a disaster, but the disaster ended up happening somewhere else. That was part of the reason they turned it off. So we lost three days of instruction. And so we are waiting for the email from the chancellor saying, you have to make it up at some point in time. Uh (laughs) <laughs> My students were thrilled. There was a lot of memes going around about <laughs> about UC Berkeley has only, I've been there for 20 years and they've only canceled classes twice and once was last year when we had mm-hmm. very bad smoke. Mm-hmm. And then this year with the power cuts. So the biggest problem was for people like scientists who had labs that, mm-hmm. so they were driving their lab specimens in trucks over to San Francisco. Oh, wow. Wow, that's that's something. <laughs> it was pretty dramatic. Yeah. yeah. I thought, too, that California, in a lot of ways, is kind of a leading indicator for the country. You know, Ronald Reagan was governor of California. Ed Meese, his attorney general and kind of henchman, was his right-hand man stamping out on the student protests at, in, in Berkeley. And in a lot of ways now, California, we might it's, it's very diverse racially and eth- ethnically. In some ways, it's very progressive, but in other ways, it's it's not. And I thought the with this blackout, it was another kind of leading indicator of the way climate change and inequality intersect, and kind of who can afford generators, you know, what areas might be affected the most. And I just wonder if you could speak to that. Did you see around you, or when you, as a resident, as you were preparing for the blackouts, maybe your neighbors were how. Did that, that interaction between climate change and climate crisis, really, and inequality sort of play out around you? Yeah, we were lucky where I live in Oakland. We didn't lose it, but it was mostly turned off in the part of the Bay Area where I live. It's interesting geographically because for years, the wealthier people lived in the hills, and then it was middle class and poor people in the flats. And What's happened is that as the Bay Area has become more expensive now, everything, you know, there's wealthy people in every part of oh, <laughs> Oakland yeah. and Berkeley. Uh-huh. And so the hills lost power because that's where the wind was the highest and you I have see. the most trees and stuff, hot, dry grass, et cetera. So, so it was the old money of the Bay Area uh-huh. that was kind of the boomer, the older boomer people who live in the hills who are sort of like the... I think of like the classic Bay Area liberal, you know, with the Prius, the Bernie sticker and like the organic food and like that. (laughs) But in their, you know, in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And so those are the people who are most affected. So kind of ironically, 
I think that was something people weren't expecting is that that this was going to hit them the hardest. But they have, of course, the most resources, right? And so then the remaining kind of pockets of urban poverty and lower incomes were not as strongly affected, at least in in Oakland and Berkeley and other parts of the North Bay. You know, I don't know what happened. Again, it was very ironic kind of moment of like the people who were the most panicked were kind of like the old school white liberals. Um, So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and it seems like this is uh, not going to, this is going to be a recurring feature of of life in California and and probably elsewhere too uh, going forward. We don't need to totally dwell on depressing things like that. Um, (laughs) Because I wanted to talk about you as a California writer, I think especially Commonweal is a very New York magazine, very East Coast in a lot of ways. But you are born and raised in the Bay Area. You know, some of the things you've written about, like the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, feels very California. Now they're kind of maybe you were clued into that, frankly, years before some of the more mainstream media seemed to be, maybe because you were in California and saw a certain spiritual churn or were aware of certain currents and trends. So I know that's a, a sort of broad topic, but I wondered if you could just speak to that a little bit, both your writing, but also your spiritual life. Both of those things seem to me connected to California, especially when I when I think of you and your work. It, you do have an interesting perch to kind of look at what's going on and who's writing for magazines, who's editing magazines, who's all, all the East Coast media stuff that, that you kind of observe from afar. Being a, a Californian, what's it meant for you as a writer? There's both a lot of joy in it because I think I occupy a really unique beat in the sense that there's almost no religion writers on the West Coast. I think it's Uh me and Richard Rodriguez. And there's a lot of privilege in that in the sense that if there's a religion story on the West Coast, there's not a lot of other people to cover it, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the LA Times, like the revamped LA Times doesn't have a religion reporter. The Chronicle doesn't have one in San Francisco. And the New York Times has a couple, Washington Post has a few. You guys are here, America's here. We're in this building that is mostly religious organizations. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, now in a lot of Columbia University, and in which Columbia. is sort of metastasizing up here in Morningside <laughs> Heights. But yeah. yeah. But I was coming up town. I didn't take the subway because once upon a time I came here in high school and um, I didn't know my way around. I was all by myself and I'm like 15 and my friends like get on the subway and I didn't know where I was going and I got lost and I've been a little afraid of the subway. <laughs> Although it's fine usually, but I take a cab and I was looking out the window at these huge churches that are just kind of blended into the landscape. Like you go by St. John the Divine and mm-hmm. just it's just there and you really have to work to find places like that where I live. There's Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, but it's, you know, really hard to get to. It's very much an elite institution. So the religious landscape is very different where I live. And so as a religion writer, you really have to look for religion. You don't have it just in front of you. I know that's not necessarily true here, but it feels that way when I come here. I sort of feel like like when I go to Europe too, when mm-hmm. I go to Rome, religion is sort of like seeped into everything. Although yeah. the people in Rome are just kind of like ignoring it as best uh-huh. they can. Uh-huh. But do you know that difference? Maybe you saw that when you came out, when you all came out to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. that church where we had the event, you know, it's just sort of like this brutalist <laughs> concrete uh-huh. building. 
in the middle of this college neighborhood and it, it just, you wouldn't know it was a church, you know? And I think that was kind of deliberate when the architect built it. So I guess I think about that a lot, that difference of religion being something that you have to really seek where I live mm -hmm. and religion being much easier to access uh, here. Huh, so for me, that's very different. And then I think just we do have this image that you all know each other. Like when, <laughs> you know, like New York... Uh -huh. mm, uh, religion media so to speak like that you all hang out and go to the same events and and so are able to kind of network and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that but I do get the impression that you are friends with one another and you can like kind of see each other a lot whereas like I'm out here every few years I sort of arrive and I have to like be present at a bunch of things because it's such a rare kind of like a comet sighting <laughs> yeah <laughs> Like, uh -huh. I have, like, three events today, and that's uh -huh. just because I'm going home, you know? Yeah. But I think that's a big, that's an advantage and a disadvantage. I work on my own a lot. I work remotely. I've never met some of my editors. I met you, but that's because you came to us, yeah. right? Uh -huh. My literary agent is, she actually lives in Seattle, but her agency is here. And, like, I, I've never been to the office. I've uh -huh. never... Yeah. I've met her, but it's at conferences. And when she lived in New York, you know, I didn't ever see her face to face. Like every, all her whole relationship has been on the phone yeah. for 10 plus years. So it's, it's very weird. It's huh. very like, I feel like a satellite that's just kind of floating around in space. Yeah. Those are some very interesting comments about the almost practical elements of being a writer on the other side of the country. But in preparation for this conversation, I was rereading your letter from California that you'd written for us uh, maybe a year or so ago. And there's a line from it that really stood out to me. And you're talking about your teaching and your students. And you say, in semesters when I teach freshmen and seniors back to back, I get essays depicting two kinds of California narratives, one of promise and ambition, the other of life on the edge of collapse. But what happens after graduation is a rewiring that is also very Californian. And you go on to talk about Jerry Brown and his kind of successful reinvention. And in fact, your book about returning to the Catholic Church is called Radical Reinvention. And so I guess beyond the practical elements uh, of, of being a writer in California, what, and maybe you could just talk about this peace letter from California too a little bit, but what's the almost psychology of being a writer from California, or the the spiritual dimension to it, mm -hmm. uh, how it affects sort of how you see the world, or or the kind of the things around you that feed into to who you become, and and what that means again for for your writing, or maybe just other parts of your thinking and work. I think that as a religious person and a writer in California, you can get away with a lot of stuff. Like in some ways, there's a lot more room to experiment. I think there's a reason that a lot of the avant-garde literary tradition in America, the language poetry movement, and some of the experimental um, nonfiction books like Maggie Nelson lives in California, Rebecca Solnit lives in California. Mm -hmm. These kind of women who are really pushing a lot of boundaries in, in the nonfiction world and essays in particular, and queer writers tend to be kind of drawn to California as a place to to kind of go as a writer because you have a lot of freedom to kind of try things out. And I think that our distance from you all is um, advantageous in that way. On the other hand, there is a lack of resources. There is a lack of support with gentrification. A lot of writers are leaving the Bay Area. Literary scene has really mm, 
shrunk, uh, for lack of a better word. It's become harder to support yourself as a writer. I mean, it's just, you can't. It's really hard to support yourself as a writer in 2019. But I think that Pacific Standard Closed, which was one of the few right, yeah. kind of nationally known California-based mm-hmm. magazines, um, and that was a blow to California literary culture. There's not a lot of publishing uh, companies that have a foot. And so, again, I think that there's a lot of freedom in that, but there's also an anxiety. And that has to do with what I write about in the essay is that because we live in a place that is very perilous, it's not meant to be lived upon by human beings. <laughs> like. <laughs> or just very few of them. And yet you put millions, particularly I think about LA, and you put millions and millions of people on land that was not meant, it doesn't have water, it doesn't have adequate water, that what happens to writers who live in a place like that is the anxiety is manifest in their works. That's where a lot of LA writers tend to be very noirish. A lot of dystopian writing comes out of LA. That Our mutual friend Dorothy Fortenberry, who is a playwright and TV writer, you know, she writes for The Handmaid's Tale, and you think about what the topics they're taking on, and her plays are very full of that kind of dystopian anxiety as well. And I think that's just living where, you know, we weren't supposed to be there, and now we're paying the price for it in some ways. And so we're asking a lot of questions as writers about, I guess, on the West Coast, sort of like, where do we go from here? And like, how do we, how are we going to, either survive this <laughs> time that we're living in or navigate or leave. That's sort of the, the perpetual question is like, when do you know it's time to leave? Huh. And so what does that do for you spiritually? It leaves you very at sea, you know, like, so where is God in all of that? Where is faith in all of that? I think that it makes you more, in some ways, you're more spiritual and less religious, if that makes any sense. And like your spiritual, your relationship with the divine and we're very careful with this language where I live. Um, God, as you see it, gets deeper in some ways because you have that perpetual anxiety about what's going to happen. And on the other hand, like the religious framework is very loose and kind of the institutional Catholic Church, for example, doesn't have a lot of power where I live. Mm-hmm. People don't pay attention to what our bishops and archbishops say, unless it's something offensive. (laughs) And and so as a result of that, California Catholics in particular, and I I do want to write more about this at some point in time, we have this really, I think the Catholics I know who live where I live, including in Southern California, they have this really deep relationship with God and with the idea of spirituality, but they don't really pay much attention to the institutional church uh-huh. and yet they're really deeply spiritual so it's it's a funny place to do religion yeah yeah <laughs> no that's very interesting thanks well i thought you know since i already mentioned that california is a kind of leading indicator what do you see going on that is something that the rest of us that you know about or you feel or have a hunch about that the rest of us will be having to pay attention to in the years ahead well, your utility company can really <laughs> make your life difficult. You're being held hostage. Have you ever been held hostage like by a utility company? So there's that side. <laughs> there's that obvious thing. But I guess paying attention to when I was leaving, I had this moment at SFO. 
I was in the Harvey Milk Terminal, which just they just opened. So they have built this beautiful, very modern new terminal and named it after him. And there's these huge displays about his life and big, you know, giant letters and stuff. And there's a bathroom. There's, you know, men, women, there's this huge gender neutral bathroom in the middle. And I was eating a bon me like <laughs> in the in this beautiful terminal. And I felt like I was in the future of America in some ways, but then the people who were walking through were landing from other places and were kind of like befuddled by what they were seeing. And so when I say I was like, I think America is sort of like in some ways, what's the old saying, like as goes California, so goes the world or is that just the nation, America? Maybe. Yeah, right. yeah. so like you look at and i wrote about this in the essay that you mentioned like our new governor you know like he's very he just signed all these bills like if you go look through all the bills that gavin we all call him gavin um mm-hmm. that gavin just signed um there's things like um schools can't you know he's got little kids and so like there's an issue with schools starting too early oh yeah right and so like, I, did, I did see that did news. you see that because I, I had a number of friends tweet like oh where was this when i was in third grade exactly <laughs> but it makes sense from our point of view as teachers too you don't want who wants to start school at 8 a.m uh-huh. so now there's a bill about that like there's the the bills are very that he's signing are, and there's one about student athletes you know that like oh, right paying them yeah right. paying them right and so these are national conversations that are actually being enacted and so watch us to see how that goes but what's interesting about him is that he's very he's a populist in a lot of ways i was on a southwest flight once and he was on the flight like among the people when he was lieutenant governor and i thought oh he's taking this budget airline but he's actually very wealthy (laughs) like he owns a restaurant group and He's got tons of money and lives in this really nice house. And so, like, that's the contradiction, I think, that we're pointing out is that people who are very elite can be people who care about non-elites. But then what does that look like in action? So as we're watching the next presidential election, you know, if we see somebody like Warren, you know, ending up being the candidate, I don't know. But she's somebody who's similar. She is the elite, you know, but she cares. She seems to care. I don't know her personally, but she seems to care about the non-elites and that's her platform. And so what does that look like in action? I think we're seeing that playing out with Gavin. And by the way, Gavin went to is Catholic, race Catholic, went to a Jesuit college, uh, St. Clair University, talks all the time about being formed by his Catholic education, but is no longer practicing. And so he's very much like, he's Gen X, right? He is very much a Gen X Catholic in that way. Huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, I think this is a probably a good place to stop. Thanks so much for coming by. I know you have a busy schedule during your brief sojourn here in New York, but thanks again, and it was great. Yeah, thanks, Matt. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.